Let's take our Bibles, please, and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 23. That's the third book of the New Testament, Luke and chapter 23. If you're unable to find it, have someone next to you help. Luke 23, beginning in verse 44, if you would, please. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. We continue today, for the last time, our journey into the final sayings of our Saviour on the cross. Again, this is all preparatory to our time around the table of communion, the Lord's table, which we'll do in a little while. There are seven words or statements that the Lord Jesus said while he was on the cross. And as I've said before, each one of these statements gives us an insight into his character, this Jesus on the cross. And I summarized it, and I have for the last six months, each month we've looked at this by saying this. For three and a half years, Jesus showed the world how to live. But in these last six hours, he shows us how to die. This morning, as we consider a few things, I want to try to put it all together and summarize and conclude all of these truths into this one message this morning. And there's much I'm sure I'm going to need to leave out. But what I want to do first and foremost, as an introduction, perhaps you haven't heard all of the, uh, the other six messages, I want to give you a timeline and an overview of all the events that, has, that have occurred over these last few hours on this Friday. And so that's what I want to do as an introduction before we get right into the text. And I hope this will be helpful and I hope it will also bring our minds into gear as we imagine in our own minds what that day would have looked like. It's 6 a.m. Friday morning. Crucifixion morning. It's around 6 o'clock because it's the break of day. And the Lord Jesus has been up all night. He's already been in the night before in Gethsemane. He's already been to a mock council in the middle of the night, which was illegal by Jewish law. But it's 6 a.m. Friday morning. And the Jewish leaders march the Lord Jesus to a man called Pontius Pilate, the governor of Jerusalem, who cannot be disturbed before the break of day. So immediately, as early as possible, they take an already beaten and bloodied Jesus to this man. Matthew 27, 11 to 14 tells us, When accused before Pilate, the governor, Jesus does not defend himself. That's unheard of. Nobody stands before the governor and says nothing. And so the first declaration made by Pontius Pilate in Luke 23 and verse 4 this man is not guilty. That's interesting. Governor of Jerusalem finds the Lord Jesus not guilty. But the crowd are dissatisfied and the crowd are very clever and manipulative. And so they begin to talk about regions and jurisdictions in front of Pilate. And Pilate, the history is that Pilate and Herod are not good friends. So Pilate, in an attempt to wash his hands of the whole situation, sends the Lord Jesus over to Herod, who at that time is in Jerusalem. Because it's the Passover time and because there is often uproars. And so they have uh, extra uh, infantry. And so Pilate 
sends Jesus to Herod. And Herod has wanted to see Jesus for some time. So Pilate sends him. And so he reaches Herod, who's not too far away. And Herod begins to question the Lord Jesus at length. And Jesus, the Bible says, does not reply a word for the second time. Herod continues to try, and the, uh, the language used in that text tells us that he tries and tries and tries to get out of the Lord Jesus' information. But we find that uh, Luke tells us that Herod and his soldiers mocked him and treated him with contempt in Luke 23 and verse 11. In fact, so much so that Herod puts on the Lord Jesus, puts onto Jesus splendid clothing. In an attempt to mock him. Now, I just want to pause for a moment here because this is really an exciting little gem that I never knew before. When it says in the Bible that Herod arrayed Jesus in splendid clothing, the Greek word there literally means bright raiment. It was the festal white garment of nobility. Now, I think this is really interesting because when we get to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 4, and I promise I'm not going to take a long time here, but this is amazing. In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 4, the Lord Jesus says to the church in Revelation that his saints will be given white raiment, precisely the same word as that which the Lord Jesus was clothed in by Herod. And the white robe symbolizes his purity. It symbolizes his innocence. His first change of clothes on that particular day was into white splendid apparel. Now, Herod didn't know what he was doing, but God did. And so after he's done that, the Bible doesn't tell us that they remove that clothing off him. So presumably the Lord Jesus continues to wear that white raiment and back he goes to Pilate. Having been questioned by Herod, nothing gained. He sends him back to Pilate. Now it's around 7 a.m., probably about an hour later. So Jesus returns to Pilate, Luke 23, 11. So Pilate constructs a plan, believing that Jesus is innocent. He's already said he's not guilty once. And again, he realizes that the Lord Jesus is not guilty. So he, he constructs a plan. Well, ordinarily, it would be customary for me to let someone go of your nation, Jews. So let me put before you a choice, Herod says. Uh, excuse me, Pilate says. You have Barabbas, the Bible tells us, who is a notable criminal. Or Jesus, which of these two would you like me to release for you today? Now, Pilate thinks he's being very clever here because he thinks, of course, the Jews are going to say, we don't want Barabbas. He's a notable criminal in our society. But uh, unfortunately for Pilate, but in God's grand plan, the crowd say, we'll take Barabbas. Thank you. And you crucify Jesus. I think it's an interesting thing to note at this point. Even before Jesus goes to Mount Calvary, he's already a substitute for a criminal. Barabbas set free and Christ the substitute. Pilate's a weak man. And I wonder if Pilate thinks, I know what I'll do. I'll scourge the Lord Jesus. And if they perhaps see the blood that occurs there, they'll see the horrific display of the Roman torture by way of scourging, and then that'll be enough and will preserve the life of this man, Jesus. So the scourging takes place. And I've given you a summary of that before, what that looks like. I won't do that now. But a horrific torture. That's not enough. The crowd say, away with him, crucify him. So Pilate finally, in Mark 15, 15, releases Jesus to the soldiers to be crucified. Now, some interesting facts in the story that, again, I hadn't noticed before, was that in Mark chapter 15 and verse 16, by the way, when you take all four Gospels and you mesh them together with the story, there's some incredible things that you gather that you don't get when you just read one Gospel at a time. But when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and put all the facts together, it just meshes wonderfully. And so in Mark chapter 15, we find that when Pilate lets uh, the Jews take Jesus along with the soldiers to crucify him, the soldiers call the whole battalion together. Now, when I look that up in my Bible dictionary, I find that a Roman battalion was 600 men. 600 men for this 
Nazarene, Jesus. He emptied the entire fortress of Antonio for this one person. The soldiers gathered everyone together. This must have been some criminal. At least that's what would be in the minds of the soldiers. 600 men to escort Jesus to the crucifixion. Interestingly, we find when we read further in that gospel, the soldiers now put a purple cloak on the Lord Jesus. Herod's put a white feastal noble clothing on him. And now the soldiers put on a purple cloak which, by the way, in Scripture, purple is a symbol of authority and majesty and power. This is now the second change of garments. He began in his humble daily clothing. Herod replaced it with the white splendid clothing, which symbolized innocence, and it was torn to shreds more than likely by the whip. And now the soldiers put on him a purple or scarlet robe, symbol of majesty. So just in the clothing alone, we have the humility of Jesus Christ in his natural clothing. We have the majesty and the innocence of Jesus Christ in the two garments to follow. And we find that the Bible tells us the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and rammed it on its head. Mark 15 and verse 17, they worshipped him falsely. They struck him on the head with a mock scepter. And then the soldiers stripped off him his blood-stained purple garment and put his own garment back on him. Great symbol of being stripped of his majesty. And wasn't the Lord Jesus stripped of his majesty when he came in humility into this world? Great pictures. And now it's around about 8 a.m. So much has happened by this time already. It's about 8 a.m. and Jesus is led out of the governor's headquarters by these soldiers to be crucified. Matthew 27 tells us about that. Having left the Antonio Fortress, which is where the governor was, Jesus was led down the path which is now referred to as the Via Dolorosa. Some of you would be familiar with that term. It means the way of suffering. The total distance of that narrow street is about 650 yards. That's 594 meters. It's not a very long way. The street was surrounded by markets at this time. And the Lord Jesus is led through this place bearing the patibulum, which is the crossbar of the cross. He's carrying it, bearing it. He's accompanied by 600 soldiers, remember? And someone at the front of that crowd is holding up a sign that says, King of the Jews, in Latin, in Hebrew, and in Greek, just in case someone couldn't find out what had happened. Can you imagine the scene? It's a little narrow street. 600 soldiers, let alone the crowds and the Jewish leaders, a sign at the front and the Lord Jesus bearing this crossbar. What a scene. Evidently, the Lord Jesus, under the weight of that crossbar and his afflictions, cannot carry it any further. Simon of Cyrene, a man from Africa, probably a black man, summoned to carry this crossbar, Matthew 27.32 says. Now, again, I just have to insert a really interesting point here. For those who are interested in some of the historical things of the day, in Mark 15.21, we are told that this man, Simon of Cyrene, was the father of Alexander and of Rufus. Can't imagine naming someone Rufus. But anyway, Rufus was that son's name of this man, Simon of Cyrene. When we get to Romans chapter 16 and verse 13, Paul greets a man by the name of Rufus. Now, it begs the question, was it the same Rufus? If it was the same Rufus, could it be that Simon of Cyrene, this man from Africa, was converted as a result of bearing the cross of Jesus Christ and then his sons go on to serve the Lord in ministry? Could it be? Well, I'm not sure if that's correct or not. We'll find out in heaven. But I just don't think there's going to be too many people called Rufus. So uh, that's, what, that's what I'm basing that on. But here is Simon of Cyrene. At the end of the Via Dolorosa, this narrow road, you come to a T intersection. 
And today, if you go over there, and some of us have had the privilege of standing there, if you turn left, you arrive at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. If you turn right, you arrive at a place called Gordon's Calvary. Now, traditionally, it has always been believed that the left side, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, was where the Lord Jesus was crucified. That's been tradition. However, uh, it's my contention that Gordon's Calvary, that name, is the highest point in Jerusalem and that that is the actual place where the Lord Jesus was crucified. And the reason is a couple fold. One is, it is the shape of a skull, the mountain. Now, if you know anything about the word Golgotha, that literally means the place of a skull. Additionally, it's also the place very likely in Genesis 22 where Abraham took his son and sacrificed him on the mountain. You remember that? Or was going to. And the angel of the Lord stopped him. And remember, Abraham said, wow, Jehovah Jireh, God has provided himself a lamb or a ram. And he said, one day, this is going to be a reality in prophecy. And we, I believe that that is, in fact, the very mountain there on the right-hand side, Gordon's Calvary. But a definite time stamp we have in Scripture. I hope you're following me so far. Nine o'clock. So six, seven, eight, now nine. And the Scripture confirms this is actually 9 a.m. The third hour in Jewish time. Jesus is crucified. Golgotha, Mount Calvary is the place. Immediately after being crucified, immediately having been nailed to the cross and being lifted up and that it dropping into that hole, immediately after, the first saying comes from the lips of Jesus Christ, which is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Just ponder that for a moment. Forgive that man who just drove nails into my hands and feet. Just a few moments later, the soldiers cast lots for the Lord Jesus' clothing, his original humble clothing. Jesus is insulted and mocked by the crowd. A little while later, he's offered sour wine, which he refuses. And then sometime later, and we don't know exactly when, but it's certainly between 9 a.m. and 12 p.m., that Jesus interacts with the repentant criminal and he issues the second word. The second phrase, and he says, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. And we called that the word of salvation. You remember that? And then a little while later, Jesus speaks to Mary, his mother, and John, his disciple, sometime before midday, and he says, woman, behold your son. And to John, he says, behold your mother. And we talked about the word of tenderness, the third word. This is all before 12 p.m. The next time stamp in the scripture is noon. It's now 12 p.m. And suddenly a strange darkness covers the whole land from 12 p.m. until 3 p.m. Clear time stamps in the scripture. And remember, when we talked at that message, and you might need to listen to that again to familiarize yourself with it, this darkness was not the absence of God. It was the presence of God as he was inflicting upon his son the wrath of God for a sin which he was taking upon himself. We'll talk about that some more later. For three hours. And then at 3 p.m., the next time stamp, at the sixth, or the ninth hour, rather, in the Jewish calendar, the darkness dissipates and Jesus issues his fourth cry from the cross. He says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which simply means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God had removed his presence from his son. And that was the fourth saying, the word of isolation. Just a little while later, Jesus cries out for a drink. The Bible says in John nineteen twenty eight. after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. The word of suffering, the fifth saying. And then moments later, I believe, having fulfilled the scripture in every way, having endured the full weight of God's wrath against sin, Jesus cried to Telestai, it is finished. The work is done. John 19 and verse 30, which forms the sixth saying on the cross, which is where we were last month. It is finished. And then moments later, Jesus issues the final cry from the cross. Six hours between the two cries. 
Luke 23, 46 in our text says, Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The seventh saying. And we're going to just jump forward for just a couple of moments so we get the full picture here. Immediately following the death of Christ, after he breathed his last, Matthew tells us that the curtain in the temple was rent in twain, was ripped in two from the top to the bottom. And uh, if you know anything about Jewish history, you know that that has some really important relevance. And we don't have time for that today, some other time. But it was ripped from the top to the bottom, not from the bottom to the top either, by the way. The finger of God did it. Then the earth shook and the rocks were split at the death of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, Old Testament saints were resurrected, Matthew tells us, and entered into the city. Can you imagine this scene? And if you are standing in Jerusalem and looking out, the whole of the other side of Jerusalem, hey, you'll remember this, is there's graves all over the other side, and they would have known where these prophets were buried. They had little memorials and shrines to them, and suddenly these Old Testament prophets come up from the grave and enter into the city. And start talking, no doubt, about the death of Jesus Christ. There's a whole world of theology and all of that. These, church, are the events that occurred from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. By the way, at which time, 3 p.m., the Passover lambs were being slaughtered. Interesting connection. But today, we look at the last phrase the last word it's the word of satisfaction father into your hands i commit my spirit and then he breathes his last so join me in considering this seventh and final phrase this morning let's pray lord as uh, as we now get into the text having had a little bit of an overview of all that's happened on this particular friday morning from 6 a.m until 3 p.m Perhaps, Lord, we're now better equipped to deal with this particular saying, having been reminded of all that was accomplished. All of the things that were said from the lips of this dying man. We thank you for his death. We thank you for all that we're about to learn. Help us to uh, be able to concentrate and take in what you'd have for us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope that is helpful as we begin. And you say, as we begin, there's a lot there, there is a lot there, but it was necessary for us to see that before we get to this part. So the first thing I want you to see, looking at Luke 23 and verse 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. First thing I want you to see is simply this communion with the Father. That's the first point, communion with the Father. During this six-hour ordeal on the cross, the Lord Jesus spoke on seven occasions, and I've just given them to you. Seven is a very important number in the Scripture. It is the number of perfection. It's the number of completeness. But it's also another number that sometimes people forget about. It's also the number of rest. You see, it's a creation and a redemption principle. See, in creation, God creates the world and then on the seventh day, he rests. I think it's interesting that after seven sayings on the cross, the Lord Jesus rests. The job is done. It's complete. It's finished. So this number seven is quite important. And I'd encourage you to study it out sometime to have a look at all the ramifications of that number in the scripture. But we notice the first word in his phrase here, the word father. Father. Such an encouraging an assuring title. It speaks of a closeness, a communion and an intimacy. Now I must confess this morning that as I looked at this word, this word is somewhat distant to me in the physical realm, having not grown up with a father figure in my family at all, reliant upon other men in church and other men in the community to fulfill that role. I don't have a complete or full understanding by any means of what the term father means. But this I do know. The term father to me doesn't represent a human figure in my life because my fatherly figure has been God. 
Because years and years ago when I was devastated at the fact that I would grow up without a father and work through all of that, I came across a verse in the scripture that says God is the father of the fatherless. And from that time I claimed that promise and have made that real for myself. But when it comes to a physical paternal relationship, I have very little idea except for what I study. But I know this much from the scripture, that when Jesus says father, it means more than any of us can imagine. Because the relationship is closer and more intimate than any other relationship in all of history. The Heavenly Father and the Son. Father. I think it's interesting too that the first and last words from the cross are, Father, forgive them. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It begins and ends with the Father. An interesting thought. But one thing we note about the Lord Jesus right throughout his life, from from his uh, growing up all the way through to his death, is that his life is marked by communion and submission to his father. In fact, I did a quick count last night. I went through the Gospel of John. It took me longer than I thought it was going to. I looked up every time the word father appears in the Gospel of John. You'd be surprised to know 116 times Jesus refers to his heavenly father as father. That's a lot of times, 116, and that's in the Gospel of John. That's not all the Gospels, just one, one book. In fact, as I looked at it, I thought, wow, this is so interesting. Not only is the first saying begin with Father, not only does the last saying uh, begin with Father, but the very first words that come out of Jesus' mouth. You remember in Luke chapter 2, Mary and Joseph are looking for their son, and he's back in the temple in Jerusalem talking with the scribes, and they say, why have you done this to us? Jesus, we've been worried sick about you, paraphrase. And the Lord Jesus says, did you not know that I was to be about my father's business in my father's house from the beginning to the first saying on the cross to the end of his life it's all been about his father father but something critical for us to understand this morning is this it hasn't been father right throughout the six hours it started with father and then we came to at the end of the darkness you remember the lord jesus says my god my god Why have you forsaken me? This is very, very interesting and very, very important theologically, church, because we need to understand at the beginning, the relationship was no problem, perfect. Everything was as it ought to be, so to speak. But when we get to uh, God who is heaping upon his son the wrath over sin because he's our substitute and sin must be paid for. And that's what Jesus Christ was doing on the cross. In the midst of that, it's no longer the communion that existed before. It is my God, my God, why have have you forsaken me? But once judgment has been accomplished, once he has become the propitiation, the satisfaction for sin, he returns at the end and doesn't say, my God, into your hands I commit my spirit. No, now he says, Father. It's been done, it's complete, the relationship in its fullest sense is restored. What a beautiful picture of salvation. See, for a moment there, he wasn't, but for a moment there, it would appear that Jesus and the Father were enemies because of the wrath of God that was being heaped upon the Son. And in a sense, that is true because he was sin for us. But then the wonderful point of redemption of salvation is that that one who has God as judge can also come to a place where God is Father. What an incredible thought. Now all has been accomplished. The cup has been drained. The storm of God's wrath has been extinguished. The darkness is past and now the Son and Father are once again in perfect communion. Now that the Son is about to die as the offering for sin, he says, Father. Is it not remarkable, church, That his father is our father if we've trusted in the son. Isn't that a remarkable thought? Because 1 John 3 and verse 1 says, See what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And just in case you weren't sure, John says, and so we are. Behold, the King James says, behold, look at this, focus on this. The love of God is proven in the fact that we have the same father as does the Lord Jesus, if we are his. 
Ephesians 2.18 says, For through him, Jesus, we have both access into one spirit to the Father. Jesus said when he was on earth in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but through me. There is no way that you can have access to God the Father except through the Son. No works, no effort on your part, nothing you can achieve by way of your own salvation unless you come through the man on the cross before us today. And so there's communion with the Father. I want you to see, secondly, the commitment of the Spirit to the Father. The commitment of the Spirit. Little s, by the way. We're not talking about the Holy Spirit. Commitment of the Spirit to the Father. Jesus said this, not just Father. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my Spirit. I want to make a couple of observations here before I uh, explain a few things for us. Notice the words, into your hands. I'm going to give you a big word here. I'm going to explain what it is. Some of you will know. Into your hands is an anthropomorphism. Everybody get it? say that three times fast. It's really hard. Anthropomorphism. It's actually a very simple concept. What it means is this. It is the attributing of human characteristics to something that is not human. So, for example, God does not have hands, does he? Well, he's a spirit, the Bible tells us. He's a spirit. But yet the Bible tells us that he holds us in the palm of his hand. Now, we know that can't be literal because he's a spirit and God is, a, God is not flesh and blood. So we have here an anthropomorphism. It's something that the Bible teaches us so that we can understand it, though it not be a full reality as we see it. Does that make sense? So uh, we, talk about, uh, we talk about God's heart towards his people. Now, he doesn't have a beating blood vessel like we do, but he has that concept of a heart towards us. So when we talk about this anthropomorphism, when Jesus says, into your hands, I'm not talking about physical hands. He's conveying this message. I entrust my spirit to you. That's what Jesus is saying. I deposit my soul to your good keeping, to your securing sometime i'm not going to do it this morning but there are there's an incredible study i did it it's in my notes but i know i don't have the time so i'm not going to do it there's an incredible study on the hands in the new testament hands study the word hands in the new testament i had 12 things to share with you which is clearly why i'm not going to do it but the hands in the, uh, in the New Testament are quite amazing when you study it out and you realize all that uh, relates to the physical hands uh, of the Lord Jesus, of the disciples and various other things. But here, Jesus says, into your hands, I commit my spirit. This word commit, please take note of this word. It's a special word. Paratithemi in the Greek. And it means to deposit it means to entrust, to place alongside of, to trust for protection, to commend. That's what this word means. Jesus was saying, Father, the one I'm closest to, I deposit my being, my soul, my spirit into your care. That's what he was saying on the cross. So we have to ask a question here this morning, and this is a big question. What does he mean here by Spirit. What does he mean by spirit? Into your hands I commit my spirit. So here's what the Bible teaches about spirit. Okay, and by the way, we're not talking about the Holy Spirit. We're talking about the spirit of a man, of an individual. The spirit is that immaterial part of a person. It's not the tangible flesh. In fact, I like what some commentators say. This is just the body suit. Okay? What you're looking at here, what you see is just the body suit. As humans, we are made up of two parts, the outer man and the inner man. That's the simplest way to look at it. We call this the dichotomist view, if you really want to sound smart. The dichotomist view, di meaning two. Proof of this is in 2 Corinthians 4.16. Paul says, We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed day by day. You know what Paul says? Paul says, You've stoned my body, 
you've scourged my body, you've beaten my body, and it is wasting away. And, and some of the people in the church here say, I understand what Paul was talking about, my body is wasting away. Well, the good news is that Paul said, my inner man is being renewed day by day. You know what he was saying? He was saying, my spirit, the part that doesn't perish, the part that is unchanging, that's eternal, that goes on after this body is gone and finished, is being renewed day by day. See, the spirit or soul of a person cannot be destroyed. Every soul was created by God and will live on long after the body has perished. In fact, this is why Jesus said some very important words. Please hear this, Mark 8.36. What does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What's the point of having got everything there is to get in this life and then losing your inner man, the part that lives on? What's the point? There's no point. You're here for 70 years, the psalmist says, maybe 80 years. Maybe your life is going to be only this long, but the other part of you, the internal part of you goes on. What's the point of gathering all these things in this life? It's a waste. And Solomon said that all through Ecclesiastes. It's vanity, vanity. What's the point? There is no point. In other words, do not, be consi- do not simply be concerned about the matters of the flesh because there is a life after death and your soul will end up in one of two places. The final words of our Saviour on the cross are some of the most precious and assuring truths in all of history. He committed his spirit to the Father and so can we. See, the wonderful truth that we find in this passage and right throughout scripture is that God can be trusted in life and in death. Like Christ, the Christian can face death with anticipation and assurance because it is the Father who holds our spirit in his hands. In fact, one commentator said, the greatest evangelistic tool, the greatest way for someone who's not a Christian to see the reality of truth is watch a Christian die. Because a Christian who's walking with the Lord, they are going to embrace death. They're going to embrace cancer. They're going to embrace all of those sicknesses and diseases. Not without flaws and faults, but they're going to embrace it with a hope because it comes from within. This is not the end. In fact, this is just the entrance. We go behind the veil of death and we enter into a new life altogether. A new body, a new home, a new resurrection. All the joys. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us all about that. In fact, Stephen, commonly called the first martyr, if you, uh, if you don't uh, include John the Baptist in that, he said this in Acts 7.59, having been stoned, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he said, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they've just done. How does, how does a Christian... Now, we can say, okay, we understand how Jesus Christ did that. He's the perfect, you know, perfect man, no problem. But here's Stephen in his death. He's not a perfect man, but he is a Christian and he's able to say, receive my spirit, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus' life and death is marked by this reality. He entrusted his entire being to his father. And like I said before, in this final exclamation from the cross, he shows us how to die. Paul understood. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is not a hope that the world has. Nobody can say that in the world that knows not the truth of the gospel. As believers, we view death not as a morbid experience, but as the blessed ushering in of our eternal life into the very presence of God. We sing that song, Judy loves it, face to face with Christ my Savior. Face to face, what will it be when with rapture I behold him? That's the joy that we have. That's the hope that we have. It's not a hope. Oh, I hope this is going to happen. It's a no. So you can say to me, are you 100% convinced beyond the shadow of a doubt that if you drop dead this instant, you will be in the presence of God? I can say amen and amen and amen because the hope of glory is within. I know it. I know it. And it does not matter what kind of death you face, even though there may be trials along the way, you will enter into his presence, just like the repentant thief. In fact, Paul again says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, 
about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. I love, don't take this the wrong way, but I love taking Christian funerals. Now that doesn't mean I want you all to just drop dead so that I can take some more funerals. (laughs) But I love taking Christian funerals. You know why? Because the Bible says precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his loved ones. You know what that means? And some people, I've had some people say to me, you don't seem very emotional about the death of that individual. And the truth is often I'm not. And and sometimes, sometimes I feel like I have to turn the waterworks on because people are expecting you to be more grieving about it. But the reality of it is, if that is a Christian individual who has spent their life loving God, they are in his presence. They're not sad. D.L. Moody said, one day you're going to read in the newspaper that D.L. Moody has died. Don't you believe it for a moment, he said. I am right then rejoicing in the presence of God, having the best time ever. And that's so true. We have a hope, we have a blessed hope that knowing the Lord Jesus Christ as Saviour, we can embrace death and all that is to come because we know it. And my question this morning, how do you view death? For the world, they are afraid and they ought to be. They ought to be. There ought to be a fear. Are you prepared to meet your maker? Are you ready to stand before him? Now, there's only one of two places you'll stand before him. You'll either stand before him as your father... Or as your judge. And when the Lord Jesus said, my God, my God, he stood before him as judge, but then before him as father. And he stood before God as judge so that you don't have to stand before him as judge, so that you can stand before him and be able to say, this is my father, God. Have you ever entrusted your soul to the saviour? Have you ever turned from your sin, turned from all that is you, all the sin and the flesh of your life and said, I know this damns me. I know that this is going to bring about my destruction eternally. So I turn in faith, believing that Jesus died for my sin, that he is the only way, none other but Jesus Christ. That's the only way you can embrace death like Jesus did. See, death need not be feared when you're the child of God. But Jesus does say this. Do not fear those who can kill the body. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Matthew 10, 28. How the Lord Jesus embraced death is how the Christian embraces death. So I want to encourage us here in that. Rejoice at the thought of being in the presence of God. What a joy that will be. The final point that I want to cover this morning And I do want to cover it, but I want to take just a few more moments if you'd give me grace to cover this. This is this is the crux. This is the jewel. This is the summit of the whole of the seven sayings of the cross. And so I've called this final point the completion of salvation through the death of Christ, because the Bible says, and having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus died Contrary to some of the doctrines of this day that were evil and wicked, Jesus died. He didn't fake it. He didn't go into the grave and then somehow resurrect and resuscitate himself by way of not really dying. He died and then was truly resurrected by the Spirit of God. But he died. But we have to ask a very important question. What? Did the death of Jesus accomplish? Now, some of you are going to look at me and say, hey, whoa, 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 how could you leave this to the end? You're going to be here all day. I'm not because you're going to see me speed through this like you've never seen anybody speed through it. What did the death of Jesus accomplish? That's a really important question for us to know. And you'll be thankful to know there's only 20. There was 50. All right. I just want to run through them real quick. What did Jesus's death accomplish? You can get a copy of this if you want afterwards. Number one, he absorbed the wrath of God. Romans 3.25, God put forward his son as a propitiation by his blood. This was to show God's righteousness. Propitiation, remember I preached on that recently. The divine satisfaction, he absorbed the wrath of God. Here's the point, church, and this I'm going to spend just a moment on this one because this is so important. The wrath of God cannot be extinguished. It cannot be in the sense that the wrath of God exists. It's part of his nature against sin. God is perfectly holy and therefore he cannot have any inclination. He cannot any any direct contact with sin. So sin must be punished because he's a just and righteous God. 
the wonderful news of the gospel is that Jesus was the one who was punished for us. That's what we call propitiation, satisfaction. God was pleased that his perfect son died in your place. That's what it is to appease the wrath of God. You don't have to stand before him as judge now. You stand before him as saviour if you trust in his work. Number two, what did the death of Jesus accomplish? It demonstrated the love of God for sinners. God demonstrated his love, Romans 5 says, in that while we were sinners, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. Such love. Would you die for your enemy? The Bible says some, some wouldn't even die for their friends, for a good person. God sent his son to die in our place. What love is this? Number three, he annulled the power of sin. Romans 6, 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The power of sin in our life was destroyed at the death of Jesus Christ. We don't have to any longer live under the power and the penalty of sin. That's what Jesus' death accomplished. We have victory in that through Jesus Christ. Number five. Number four. You nearly got away with one. Number four. He cancelled the legal demands of the law against us. Colossians 2, 13 to 14 says, You were dead in your trespasses. God made us alive with him, having forgiven all our trespasses, cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. You and I, guilty. We are guilty. We are sinners. We're born that way, but we don't have to die in our sin. He cancelled that debt in Christ. Incredible. Number five, forgiveness of sin. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. That's being purchased, bought back, the forgiveness of our sin. There is no life like knowing your sins have been forgiven. There is no life like it. Number six, declared the sinner to be righteous. Romans 5, 9, we have now been justified by his blood. Quickly, justification, I know I say it probably every week, declared righteous. So it's as if we sit in a courtroom here. It's as if, and I say this reverently, it's as if God the Father stands here as I am and the Lord Jesus there and the criminal on display here and he's guilty, guilty, guilty. And so the father says, uh, is, is, there any, is there any reason why I should not condemn this person to eternal hellfire? Is there any reason? And the saved individual, the Lord Jesus stands up and he says, I took his place and I declare him to be righteous. The penalty of his sin was placed on me. He's right. Pass over him. That's justification. Declared righteous though a sinner because of Jesus Christ. Number seven, removed our condemnation. Number eight, brought us to God. One of my favorite verses in the whole of the Bible, 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God. The only, the only way you can get to God is because the righteous was slain for the unrighteous. Number nine, he made us holy and blameless and perfect. That doesn't mean we don't sin anymore. It just means that our sin is covered, it's finished, it's done, and we are his holy. And you can look up the text, Colossians 1.22 in your own time. Number 10, eternal life to all who believe. We know this first, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What you must do to be saved is to believe in faith the truth about Jesus Christ. That's your responsibility. Failure to do that will mean your eternal damnation. Number 11, confidence and access to the holy place. Again, we don't have time. Hebrews ten nineteen. Number 12, freed us from the slavery of sin. No longer bound, no longer enslaved. Romans 6.6. 6. Number 13. He enabled us. I want to just, just one moment on this. He enabled us to live for Christ. 
Did you know that the death of Jesus Christ and his subsequent resurrection, that enabled us to live for him? If that had not occurred, we could never live for him. We would never have life. In fact, Galatians 2.20 tells us that my life is not my own. My life is my life in Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. Number 14. This is an interesting one, church. You might never have thought about this. Why did, what did the death of Jesus accomplish? Number 14. It gave marriage its deepest meaning. Have a, thought, have a think about that for a moment. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Marriage is based on the gospel. So therefore, a marriage that is not based on the gospel is not fulfilling what Jesus intended it to do. That's... It's no wonder why we have a, a world filled with divorces and marriages that don't last. This was the point to show Christ and the church gave marriage its deepest meaning. Number 15, it conquered death and the devil. I think we know that. Hebrews 2.14. Number 16, it destroyed racial hostility. Did you know there is no room in the Christian faith for racial discrimination of any kind. In fact, there's no room for discrimination of any kind, full stop. But dealing specifically with racial hostility, the Bible tells us that Jesus crucified in himself the partition and the wall that was there. He totally destroyed that so that there is no Greek, no Jew, no barbarian, no Scythian, no bond, no free, no male, no female. It was all taken care of and there is now no racial discrimination. Let it not once be named amongst the church of Jesus Christ that we would ever discriminate ever now that doesn't mean we don't uphold the truth but it does mean that we never discriminate we never have a people orientated faith that says well i'll take you but not you that doesn't exist in the gospel and jesus put that to death racial discrimination in his death number 17 rescued us from final judgment see there is a day coming where all nations, tribes, tongues will stand before Jesus as the judge. See, right now he's available as your saviour, but if you neglect that so great salvation, you will stand before him as judge at what is called the great white throne in the future. The Lord Jesus rescued us from that final judgment. Number 18, why did Jesus or what did he accomplish? That he would be crowned with glory and honour. Hebrews 2.9, the Bible says, But we see him, Jesus, who was for a little while made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. There's a whole message on that. Number 19. What did Jesus accomplish? He fulfilled the predetermined plan of God. You know, it was always God's plan to send his son to die for our sin. Peter, standing up on the day of Pentecost, said, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That was always God's plan to redeem sinners. The final, number 20, as we close. What did the death of Christ accomplish? The final and ultimate glory of God. It was all about that. John 17, the Lord Jesus prays to his heavenly father just prior to the crucifixion. He says, I glorified you on earth, father, having accomplished the work that you have given me to do. And now, father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, I'm sure, church, you understand that's just a snippet. That is just a little entree of what is the gospel is all about and what Jesus accomplished in his death. For seven months now, we've looked at the final words of a faithful saviour. And have we not found him to be exceedingly faithful? Have we not found him to be exceedingly gracious, even in death? Have we not found him to be the saviour, even on the cross with the criminal? Have we not found him to be the sin bearer? Have we not found him to be full of grace and truth? Have we not found him to be abounding in love and extravagant in grace? Towards unworthy sinners. What a saviour. What a saviour.